The Son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. His blood-red banner streams afar, who follows in his train, who best can drink his Welcome to Death and Glory Podcast here in Studio K. My name is Jordan Parks, and I am joined by my co-host, Peter Asmussen. Death and Glory Podcast exists to remind Christians to love our King, die with honor, and live with hope imperishable because Christ has been raised from the dead. Before we get started, we wanted to remind you to check out Puritan.pub. This is a digital safe haven for Christians seeking a social media alternative to big tech. It was developed by a dear brother, Aaron Schaffelwallaf, and is a great way to connect with other believers. Open your browser and go to Puritan.pub slash terms for more information. Also, if you are a fan of the show and would like to support Death and Glory, please visit our Patreon page, uh, Patreon slash Puritan Pub Media. We want to welcome to the show our good friend and brother, Stephen Freeland. Stephen Freeland has been a member of Faith Community Church since 2015. He's married and has three kids. He is a practicing attorney and an avid outdoorsman. He was born in the South, where he was introduced to hunting, fishing, and camping. His family moved to Missouri when he was 12, and he's considered a Missourian ever since. Welcome, Stephen. Gentlemen, thank you for having me on. So, uh, just to get you prepped, we, we want you to think of your best hunting story, and that, that's what we'll end on. So just be thinking of that. Don't tell us now, but at the end of, uh, end of the show, you can tell us that. Sounds good. So, um, what are we talking about today? Well, we're going to get into why Stephen likes murdering fuzzy little animals. Criminal. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Stephen, uh. I thought we'd open this, you know, pretty easy. Do animals have spirits? Animals do not have spirits. Okay. Not eternal souls, spirits, in the way that people do. There's life within them, and when they die, that life goes out of them. And the Lord may bring back our favorite animals in heaven. That's up to the Lord and certainly within his power. Uh, my wife and I were talking about that um, not too long ago. Where we just get to talking about what things will be like in glory. And uh, I said, you know what? If after 100 years with Jesus, you walk up to him and say, I would love to have my buckwheat cat back. <laughs> I don't think that would be a hard thing for him to do if he decides to bring buckwheat back. But it's not because buckwheat has an eternal soul. Well said. Yeah. So we kind of live in a weird a weird time in history where pets and animals in some circles are elevated above people in a sense. Uh, I know we've all heard about PETA before and, you know, even, I think even people in their own ranks don't take them considerably seriously a lot of the time, but there's something there. Uh, I can't remember the founders, but they're both atheists and uh, on their website, this is kind of their mission statement, or it's, it's one of their things that they're, they're on right now. Bigotry begins when categories such as race, age, gender, disability, sexual orientation, or species are used to justify discrimination. So in all the woke stuff, we're, we're throwing animals in here, and uh, it, it's odd. It's odd. So we, we kind of want to go through, like, why as Christians is it okay to eat meat, to hunt, to do all those things. So, I'm going to assume you're not a huge, you're not a PETA supporter, are you, Stephen? I am not a closet <laughs> PETA member. Thank you. We appreciate that. So, going along with kind of the the pagan culture we're in, in history, we would see drinking of animals' blood, uh, eating of raw organs. Peter and I were actually talking before the show. We think that that was more than just a to get sustenance out of the blood, but it was more of a of a spiritual thing to gain life. And even Scripture talks about how the life is in the blood, right. and that's a, and that's forbidden in Scripture. Yeah, it's sort of a perversion of the true yeah yeah that's flesh and blood of Christ. You know, we've been camped out in John six recently at church. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we must partake of that for eternal life, but. The pagans take an animal and try to gain life through that. So, do you think Christians should eat, should drink blood, should consume blood? What do you think about that? 
Well, uh, do, do I think this means Christians cannot have a rare steak? No, I do not. <laughs> um, sh- should we engage in practices of uh, wannabe vampires or the occult? Absolutely not. We should not do that. Um, you know, it is interesting the way that God has drawn a line of distinction between animal life and human life. And you're right that that, that is part of the problem or the problem with PETA is it really blurs that line of distinction that God has drawn between animals and humans, um, wanting to put them on the same plane. And while uh, the PETA folks might say, well, we're just elevating animals, this oppressed, downtrodden species, uh, animals can never be beings that were created in the image of God. And so as you try to elevate them to a status that they can never attain, by necessity, you are dragging down humans who are created in the image of God uh, to a lower level. So you're degrading them as image bearers of God in the process. But God draws very clear lines of distinction between animals and humans. Um, For example, when Noah uh, and his family get off the ark, uh, God speaks very clear words about how the animals that creep upon the earth, the fish that swim in the sea, the birds that fly in the air, these are given to you as food. He tells Noah, which is different than what he told Adam prior to the fall when he spoke about the living, the plants being there for the animals and for the people as well. But post-fall, post-flood, God clearly sanctions the eating of animals, Um, not just domesticated ones either, but wild ones, which is uh, how you can justify hunting and the going out into the field and the killing of animals and the harvesting of wild meat. But also, interestingly, God told Noah at the same at the same point in time that while it is okay to take animal life, it is not okay for animals to take human lives. Mm-hmm. So he didn't let them be on the same plane. Uh, and whether it was an animal or another person who took the life of a human as an image bearer of God, that animal or person, you know, whoever the murderer was, their life would be required. We see, like with the PETA stuff. Um, and other people who kind of, they have this almost like what I'd call like environmental worship. I mean, they're, but their drive is for like total control of the population, um, even if it includes human population reduction. I mean, all in this effort to bring about some sort of utopia here where like, you know, animals aren't dying and the world is great and blah, 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 blah. blah. I mean, it's clearly wrong. But on the other side, we can also see where Every man for himself, you know, hey, go kill as many animals as you feel like doing. That's probably another ditch we could fall into. So, like, where do you fall on that? Like, where do you think Christians, how how should we think about those issues of, okay, well, yes, it is good to take care of the earth. Mm -hmm. However, there's a way in which we could maybe be too involved in what's going on. Conservation. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, this is where, like in many, in really all areas of life, you have to take the whole counsel of God. Meaning you can't cherry pick verses and say, well, this is going to be the verse uh, or the part of a verse that I'm going to hang my theology on, my entire worldview on. Um, because scripture is more complicated than that. Um, you know, there, there are many things that scripture does not come out in black and white terms and say, Thou shalt not, and thou shalt. There are some very clear ones, but then there are others that you have to piece together your worldview uh, through a totality of what you read in Scripture. Uh, all of the principles and commands and exhortation and revelation put together. Um, and you know, I think that so 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 much of this comes back to a worldview that isn't biblical, that really goes back to the first sin, and that is, did God really say? God clearly spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden about the fruit of the tree that they could not eat. And what did Satan do? He attacked what God said and tried to call that into question. And so folks who subscribe to Peter's ideology that there is no distinction between animals and humans, they are leaving behind what God has said and showing a clear distinction between us and the animal kingdom. At the same time, people who say, well, therefore, because I can kill animals, I can kill them however I want whenever I want, wherever I want, um, with a cruel and sadistic heart that takes pleasure in death, 
that person has uh, become detached from what God's word reveals about how we are to be good stewards of the earth. I mean, we are God's vice regents created in his image to care for and steward the earth. And if you look at God and his heart revealed towards his creation and word, you see a heart of compassion, not cruelty, uh, not one of uh, sadistic vindictiveness uh, or that takes pleasure in death and destruction. Is he a holy God? Yes. Will he visit judgment upon his enemies and upon those who violate his law? Yes. But God has a heart of concern even for the animal creatures. Uh, We know from the Bible that his eye is on the sparrow, that not one falls without him being aware of it. What is the last word in the book of Jonah? It's cattle. Interesting. It is the word cattle. You know, after the whole episode with the great fish that everybody knows about with Jonah, there's, of course, he goes to Nineveh, he preaches, then he goes out to sit on the hillside and see God bring this judgment upon the people that he promised. People of Nineveh repent. You know, uh, Jonah's upset about that because he wants to see the judgment come. He is very upset that God kills the plant that he was uh, taking shade under. And God ends the book of Jonah with a rhetorical question. Should I not take great pity on the city of Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, this great city with 120,000 people and much cattle? Why did he bring up the cattle? Could have stopped at people. But yet God, I think you get a little insight into his heart, while God delighted to show mercy to a repentant people, he also took pleasure in the fact that he was not going to, in the process of destroying that city, wipe out a bunch of his animal creatures mm-hmm. as well. So some pushback here. Stephen, you're saying God cares about animals, but you're also an avid hunter. You seem like you're contradicting yourself. <laughs> so flesh that out for us. No pun intended. <laughs> well, if you'll let me go down a rabbit trail first. Okay. Uh, <laughs> pun intended. Uh, no, uh, hunting is a, a complicated pursuit. It really is. Our God, at the same time, is a complicated God, not one that we could ever really hope to fully comprehend that he certainly chooses to reveal himself to a great degree in his word. But uh, woe upon us if we think that we can have God completely wrapped up as to why and how he does things. There are certain things that we can know that he is good, that he is true, that he is holy and just and righteous and all those things. But yes, God can care for his creatures and say to us in the book of Proverbs, the righteous man also regards the life of his beast and at the same time, sanction and even command the Old Testament, Old Testament sacrificial system. It can say what he said to Noah after the flood. These animals are given to you for food. Uh, I believe both of you gentlemen are uh, experienced in the field of animal husbandry. Raising chickens, correct? A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I have uh, husbanded more cats than chickens. <laughs> that may have do, well, been due to... How lack. did their eggs taste? Well, it might have been due to lack of experience, actually. <laughs> I dare say that you take a very protective view of the chickens that are in your care. Does that mean that you intend those chickens to live forever? Of course not. No, those, those chickens will surrender eggs to feed your family and potentially their, uh, their own lives as well, uh, so that you can have a... Uh, fried chicken dinner on a Sunday afternoon. So yes, we can we, we can kill animals at the same time that we steward and protect them. Uh, and I think, Jordan, this may have gone to something that you were asking about, and that is conservation. Um, I think some of the best conservationists out there have been hunters, such as President Theodore Roosevelt, an avid big game hunter, and yet a passionate conservationist, someone who we can thank for places like Yellowstone National Park, just glorious pieces of God's creation that have been set aside um, as sanctuaries for all kinds, all kinds of animals. So Peter and I, when we were kind of talking about having you on, we were talking about uh, California wildfires. Oh yeah, and how I've heard uh, quite a few sources say, outside of their weather, dry you know their dry spells that they have, poor conservation efforts in forestry. And how when people do not steward creation well, uh, things tend to go poorly. 
So do you think that that translates from trees to animals as well? Absolutely. Um, because of where we're at as a country, uh, the level of human population that we have, there are not as many natural predators as there were when people first set foot, and especially Europeans when civilization really started to spread uh, in America. And so because of that, for many species in many places, humans are the required predator to keep a population in balance. And if you don't, you see all of the unintended consequences from crop damage to vehicle accidents as deer get hit by car to pestilence, mange. I mean, diseases spread rampant through an overpopulation of prey population. And in the end, you have more suffering and you have a wasting of a resource that really, if balanced correctly, can be a wonderful, renewable resource that you harvest some each year in moderation, consistent with the laws of the state or wherever it is that you're hunting, fishing, follow those laws, observe those limits, and you have a very healthy and balanced renewable resource that, uh, on your hands that you can enjoy. I think that, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I'd agree with you, obviously. But um, I think one of the things that when I think about conservation is passing that along to future generations. So I think in the past, you know, we've seen that there's kind of a lack of conservation. You know, Missouri in the early 1900s didn't have a lot of deer. Mm -hmm. They've been almost wiped out. Department of Conservation kind of started setting game limits, seasons, things like that. Hunting is a great tradition that can be passed on from fathers to sons. Game are a part of that. So what do you see, how do you think of it as a, like an inheritance to be passed on to future generations? Yeah, some of my greatest memories uh, with family uh, on my mom's side and on my dad's side are centered on the outdoors and time spent in the deer stand together or in the duck blind together or around the supper table or the campfire after or before a hunt. Uh, just some wonderful memories and, and bonding time uh, that, that we had and made uh, around hunting. And that's part of the reason that I want my own children to have the experience that I did of going hunting. And I will say that as passionate as I am about getting out there myself and as satisfying as it is for me to spend some alone time out in the woods, my focus uh, for, for my hunting is, is shifting at this phase of my life. Um, as my kids get old enough to start carrying a gun themselves and go with me and get up early and stay up late, uh, I want them to start having those experiences because I think there's so much that you can learn um, as a person by, by being a hunter. This seems kind of adjacent, but it'll, it'll wrap around on the end. You hear in the news that I, I don't want to be a shock jock or, you know, Mr. Doom and Gloom, but I mean, influences like World Economic Forum, Bill Gates, Impossible Meat kind of type stuff, uh, really is trying to push the vegetarian veganism thing. I'm not necessarily saying that's inherently wrong or sinful, but I think I would think that you guys would agree it's almost taking on its own form, its own almost religious, uh, you know, zeal in a sense. Oh, that guy over there eats meat for shame. You know, I would I would never do that. I would never own a leather belt, you know, kind of get into that elitist elitist uh, worldview. It honestly, it makes the steaks taste that much better. It, it really does, yeah. Well, you you sent me, you, I think you posted on Pure.pub the other day, the meme of the two oh, yeah. boxers, and yeah. one was uh, one was a vegan, and it was two guys getting ready to go fight, and it was like, what was it called? Insufferable personalities or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So it was no vegan in one no, corner. Don't worry, buddy. No <laughs> one's as insufferable as us vegans. And on the other corner, it's... Uh, it's a it's a bicyclist with a helmet and his you know racing glasses or whatever. So mm-hmm. I, I thought that was hilarious. Nice. Anyway, uh, annoying personalities aside, um, do you see a problem in this kind of push toward what we would think of as a diet, kind of turning in, kind of having this religious aspect? Sure. Yeah, there are, there are certainly reasons that certain people have to eliminate some things from their diet and they might say, well, let me give this a try or that a try. But yes, the people who die, die, excuse me, head first into veganism uh, for all of its philosophical reasons are 
misguided and, and do not have a biblical worldview about the reason we have animals in this world and their purpose for us. Again, it's a elevation of animals and it's a degrading of humans and a failure to recognize that clear distinction that we are made in the image of God and animals are not. And again, it's not to say that we aren't good stewards, that we are not actually for the ethical treatment of animals, but it has to be a biblical ethic uh, that we're that we're operating under. Um, I think that veganism and the people who practice it, I think the heart is really one for a desire uh, for redemption. There's sort of this innate guilt that people carry. Oh, it's my fault that there's global warming. It's my fault that that little animal had to die. I've got to atone for this sense of sin that I feel. And the way that I'm going to deal with that is by going through this active penance of denying myself. And like many uh, false religions in the world, it can feel good to engage in that practice. Um, and, and some of those false religions are very, very close to Christianity. And there are works-based religions everywhere, including right under our nose in the church. If we're not careful, our own hearts will lead us into, this is what I have to do to atone for my sin, to make up for my past, rather than trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross. But yes, I would say that veganism as a philosophy just runs counter to Scripture. Um, and to the revelation that we have from God there. Yeah, I think um, that makes a lot of sense. And there's, I mean, some of it has to come out of the fact that in the West, like our culture is so wealthy. Like you don't have to be, you're not surviving every day. Even if you are, you know, you don't have a job, you still have access to very high quality food. And so I think that allows people to kind of live in this world where, they can come up with these kind of crazy schemes where you're like, well, golly, like 200 years ago, you, you know, you're eating what you're eating and you aren't throwing a fit, you know, you get what you get. Right. And it seems like so much of our lives is kind of virtual or based around stuff. That's, I mean, at best virtual, I guess. And sometimes it feels fake, you know, um, how does hunting and, you know, getting your fingernails dirty, getting outside, seeing an animal die, how does that help order us back to reality hmm. and kind of push back against that agenda? Yeah, uh, I think you've tapped into something there. Um, hunting connects you to, to life in a way that if you don't hunt, you don't really fully appreciate. Um, you know, if you only ever get your meals from the grocery store or from the restaurant and you don't see the life behind your meat, I don't think you appreciate it in the same way. And I think some people, they get a, a view of that and they're like, well, that's just means I'm not going to enjoy that meat. I'm going to deny myself. And again, I think it can lead to that act of, I've got to repent. I've got to atone for what I'm seeing. And again, I think that's because of a lack of a biblical worldview, but you're right that it, it is a very tangible, real experience that you, that you go through when you hunt, you know, the good things in life, are typically the things that are hard and difficult that require some level of sacrifice and perseverance. And hunting is definitely one of those things. Um, it's not always easy to get up at the crack of dawn, <laughs> drag yourself out of bed or your kids or your kids <laughs> <laughs> and go out to where it is cold and wet and whatever else the elements may be throwing at you in, in November in the Midwest. Um, it's, but it's, it's satisfying too. In the same way that you know somebody who uh, engages in a physical fitness routine and enjoys better health and a healthier body as a result, I mean, hunting to me makes your mind healthier. It allows you to get out away from all of the virtual stuff and the drama of corporate America or whatever job it is that you're working, and you get the peace and the quiet and the solitude. And you get to see God's handiwork on display and marvel at that. And, and it's interesting that, again, going back to this, this idea of something that's very tangible, I do think that is something that our culture increasingly craves. And there's even been a resurgent uh, interest in hunting 
from people uh, who are more on the left politically. Typically, you think, oh, well, hunting is just this right-wing thing. It's a bunch of good old boys, conservative rednecks, you know, create the stereotype that the left wants to have of hunters. But there are a lot of people who are more on the left politically, especially, you know, in and around COVID, mm. who realize, you know, this is a valuable skill to have. When the world gets crazy, to be able to go out and get my own food, I mean, it connects you to your ancestors in a special way. It connects you to your food in a special way, to the world that you live in. Um, it is tangible in the same way that, you know, this generation likes to pull out their vinyl records and, you know, oh, show me that, you know, what's that, that fuzziness on the TV that you had to do, the tracking, you know? I mean, they, they've never known the rabbit ear TVs, but they think, oh, that sounds so cool because it's just not so seamlessly virtual. I don't know, fake. Yeah. Clear, unreal. I mean, hunting—you find out a lot about yourself when you hunt. It's a challenge. It's a—it's a mental—it's a mental game. Because I can—I can play a video game and pretend to be a sniper, you know. And I'm—I'm—I I'm, got my legs kicked back on my on my bean bag, and I got a Mountain Dew in my hand. <laughs> but when you're sitting in a tree stand, it's you know 30 degrees and winds blowing, right. and you've got rain blowing in your eyes and. You know, oh, I, I see one out there in the distance, but these turkey over here are, are messing me up. You know, you find out what you're made of pretty quick. You do. So. Yeah. I mean, I've had people ask me, well, it sounds like you love animals. I do. I mean, every single time you know, I'm driving, I'm, you know, looking this way and that, just seeing is there a deer out there? Is there a turkey out there? Is there a dove sitting up there on the wire? And it throws people who don't have a familiarity with hunting for a little bit of a loop because kind of going back to that question posed at the beginning of our conversation. Well, do you like animals or do you like to kill them? Um, Because how can both be true? And for me, both absolutely are true. Uh, I mean, I love watching animals when I go out and I don't get anything, but I have a full hunt of animals up close and personal. I walk away very happy and satisfied with the hunt. Now, I love that when the hunt comes together and I'm also able to take meat home to my family we get to process ourselves and enjoy over the coming weeks and months. But yeah, it is, it is a great experience. It is a way to connect you to God's creation that just being a photographer or just being an observer can't really get you in the same way. Yeah. I think that, um, the way you're describing that, it sounds like like a proper ordering of your love for those animals where you're not, you know, like you were talking about the, like the PETA people putting them too high, putting them on the level of humans, but you're also not degrading them and saying, well, they're worthless and let's just get rid of them. Right. Right. Um, a part of hunting is killing the animal, obviously though. Mm-hmm. How do we not, you know, how do we avoid becoming kind of cynical towards that or jaded towards death and, and not appreciating that opportunity to harvest an animal? Yeah. I think it, I mean, it starts when you enter into the woods. I mean, you know why you're going in there. I'm going in to try and harvest an animal. If I'm going to try and do that, I want it to be as quick and as painless for that animal as possible. And the truth is, is that hunting is one of the most humane ways to take out an animal that there is. Um, I don't encourage people to look up all the uh, grizzly bear uh, videos on YouTube of bears eating animals alive before they're even dead. Uh, starvation is not a pretty picture either. I mean, there are no easy ways to go for an animal in the wild. But when you line things up, hunting is a very humane way to do it if you do it right. But that involves respect for the animal on your part before you even enter the woods, Mm -hmm. meaning that you know your equipment. If that is a bow, a crossbow, a gun, whatever, you're familiar with it. You know how to handle it, be safe with it, not just around other people, but to then actually use it to accurately deliver a shot. So for someone who's completely unfamiliar with hunting, uh, there's a term in our community, ethic, an ethical shot. Mm-hmm. So can you, can you go into that sure. a little bit? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, an ethical shot is one that you know, based on your equipment, your own limitations as a marksman, that you can make. Uh, and, and you have to take everything into account. How far away is that animal? Is it out of range for the weapon that I have? If you're hunting with a bow and arrow as opposed to a gun, your range is much more limited. Your accuracy is more limited. Deer can jump the string on a bow and arrow, meaning they hear the string, bump, 
The arrow has not yet reached the target, and that deer is coiling itself down to spring and to take off. If it's alert and it's ready to run, it can do so very quickly. You have to know that about deer too. Well, if that's the case, then I need to be that much closer so the arrow gets there that much quicker and they don't drop into the arrow to where it hits them in a non-vital part of their body and they run off with an arrow in them that's not going to kill them in a way that I can find them quickly, but is instead going to make them suffer. Um, so you wait for that ethical shot to where the animal is at the right angle, at the right distance, and you can confidently deliver a shot that uh, takes the animal down quickly. So, in that case, how do you justify bow hunting? Shouldn't we just use rifles? <laughs> well, um, th- this is where you you show, I think, in my mind, even greater respect to the animal because you tie a hand behind your back and you say, well, I'm going to limit myself to the range of 30 yards or less, and I'm going to discipline myself by not taking a shot unless I'm sure of it. And I will say, uh, I would... Sadly, I have let go of arrows, uh, released them at deer, and I have regretted it as soon as it left my bow because I was not taking an ethical shot. The excitement of the moment got over me, and I didn't find those deer. And it haunts me to this day. I still have a memory of them coming in, getting overwhelmed with excitement, and then the animal running off. And it's very tempting at that moment to sort of throw in the towel and say, you know what, this is not worth it, I can't do this, I'm throwing this bow in the trash, and I'm just, I'm never going to hunt again, or when I do, it will only be with a gun. Um, but I've missed deer with a gun, too, and if you hunt long enough, even with a gun, you will wound deer with a gun as well. But it's like so many other things in life. You will fail as a husband, as a father, as a son, a brother, a neighbor, a friend. And the answer to that is not to say, well, it's no big deal. It's also not to just throw in the towel and say, well, then I'm just not going to have any relationships with anybody, and that way I won't hurt them. It's to be very circumspect and honest with yourself and say, here was my mistake. Here's what I'm going to do differently next time so that that doesn't happen again. And I will say that when I think the moment of truth is coming, like that deer is closing and it's closing fast, and I've got the release hooked to the string and I'm getting ready to, to draw back, I typically send a prayer up that says, Lord, help me make a shot that is clean and ethical and doesn't let this animal suffer. Uh, because that's that's my end goal. I, I do want that animal to not suffer, and I want to be able to harvest it cleanly and then take the meat home to my family. I think that's really encouraging. I said, you know, just hearing that from a seasoned guy who's hunted a lot. Um, and I think that kind of goes back to, like you said, with uh, more of the, the left, politi- politically lean left crowd getting more into hunting. People think that, you know, us rednecks are out there just trigger hacky, just, you know, blowing animals away with a with right. an AK forty seven or something. You don't use an M sixty while you're Well, it's actually a minigun, yeah. Yeah, hundred <laughs> rounds per second, man. There's no meat left by the time you're done with it. No, I, I don't know you guys would agree because you guys have been through it before. There is a world of difference uh, shooting at a target yeah. and shooting at an animal. Yeah. Uh, once you get an animal in your crosshairs uh, that adrenaline starts oh, yeah. pumping and it becomes real. And I, I know, I know even as a kid, you know, going out at nine, 10, 11, 12 years old, with my dad and my grandpa and my uncle, it's like, okay, I'm not just shooting a piece of paper here. Mm-hmm. I'm getting ready to take the life of something that's living. And I think for most hunters, Christian or not, they do have a sense of that in the back of their head. And so hunting is not necessarily this, this bloodthirsty mm-hmm. sport. It can be. Um, it can turn into a big trophy game, um, which there's nothing wrong with shooting a, a 20 point, point deer or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, something that's going to score 200. But um, I, I would say at least for most people that I know, they understand, like we said, the the, the ethics right. of hunting. They understand that they're taking the life of animal. It's, it's like many things. You have the bad apples that give everyone else a bad name. And there are certainly there, there are the poachers who break the law, trespass, who spotlight deer, uh, which is a very unethical way to kill an animal because it's at night, they're in their element, and all of a sudden you shine a bright light on them, they're blinded, and you shoot them while they're frozen there. Um, it's not it's not a fair uh, playing field. And, you know, you, you can get into debates about, well, then why is your 
high-tech compound bow okay? Why are you okay putting a scope on it? I mean, there is, within the framework of hunting regulations, room for personal ethics, personal decisions about what am I okay with, you know? You have to defer to whatever the the law is. Uh, For example, in Missouri, you cannot bait deer. You can't throw out a pile of corn and put up a stand. Some of the neighboring states, that's okay. Regardless of what your personal preference is on that, you have to abide by whatever the law is for where you're hunting. But if you're in an area where baiting is legal, it's then up to your own personal conscience of what is fair to me, you know, and what satisfaction do I get out of this to where I feel like it was a fair hunt or it was not a blatantly unfair hunt, one that I, you know, couldn't live with myself. Said the lawyer. <laughs> I have to live with myself every day. <laughs> well, uh, kind of tying into that, what, what are your thoughts on the ethics of, like, hunting for trophies versus hunting for meat? I think the meat always has to be used. I, I, I don't care necessarily how or where, um, you know, certain African safaris, I know they get a bad rap. Doctors, lawyers, those are rich people. I've gone overseas, taken big animals, and I've just been absolutely crucified on social media when you see a picture of them with an elephant or a giraffe or a Cape buffalo. Um, but what's not said is that the meat there is never wasted. I mean, it always goes to local villagers, um, supports the local economy. Again, it is part of the conservation over there in Africa as well. But yeah, for, for individuals, does everybody have to like deer or duck or geese or whatever it is? No. Uh, I wasn't a big fan of venison when I started hunting in my teens. Now, part of that was because I didn't really know how to prepare it and handle it. And thankfully, being married to the woman that I am, uh, I've learned all kinds of uh, tips and tricks to, to make it taste really, really good. And that's a, an important part of the hunt now to where I'm very excited when I just get a doe. Uh, but for other people who maybe venison is not their thing, okay, that's if you want to hunt for a big buck, that's fine. But where is the meat for that big buck going? Are you just cutting off the head and leaving the rest of it to rot? That to me is in poor taste and being a poor steward of the resource that God has given you. Um, there are plenty of donate the harvest uh, programs out there in Missouri. I know has one where hunters can take the deer in, they get processed, and then the meat gets given out to needy families. Would I ever do that myself? No, uh, because again, I like venison. I would struggle a little bit, even if I didn't like venison, to just go kill as many deer as I could, and I have really no, other than dragging them into my truck, taking them to the processor, I have no connection to that animal. Like to me, that would feel like I've crossed into, okay, I'm killing just to kill, or it's, it's purely for the thrill. And I'm giving no thought or, or, or serious thought to the life of the animal that I'm taking. So I think that you can get into some dangerous ground with a trophy hunting. Having said that, I am a hunter who I've killed enough small bucks in my life that I am holding out for the big one. And if it's one that I think could use another year or two to get really big, I'll pass the, the young bucks and wait for a doe. But that's just my own personal standard. And certainly when my boys get to hunt, or my little girl, um, I'm not going to say, hey, you need to let that deer go so it gets bigger for me next year. It's take the first animal that you get a shot at. For any listener out there who this is a whole new topic experience, uh, but are interested in hunting, what are what would you say are some things to study up on? What are first steps to, to kind of get into this world? Sure. Um, I would say... First of all, reach out to your local fish and game wildlife agency. I live in Missouri. It's the Missouri Department of Conservation. Uh, For me here locally, they have a lot of classes uh, that they do for people who want to get into hunting because they recognize that not everybody grows up in a family that does hunt. Some people just didn't have that advantage that that I did uh, to have uncles and a dad who would take me and introduce me when I was really young. And so they will... Start from ground zero and talk with you about the biology of the animal species that you can pursue. They will talk about the equipment. You can go through a hunter safety course. Many of states, many states require those that you go through some sort of hunter safety course that shows you know how to safely handle hunting equipment, including firearms, uh, so that you can get out there and not be a danger to yourself or to others. Um, and that you can put a good shot on an animal and bring it down. And they will also 
give you classes and lessons on how to uh, take down a deer or field dress a wild turkey. Uh, and of course, YouTube. I mean, there is so much out there on YouTube that you can watch. Uh, you, know, you can watch over the shoulder as hunters go on hunts. And you got to be careful with some of those because they can make it look very easy and very simplistic. But there are some good educational ones out there that talk about how you scout, how you look for animal sign, how you play the wind, how you make a good shot, how you then dress and field dress the game that you've you've shot. So there are some good resources out there. Um, And then just getting out there and doing it. If you, you can find a place to hunt. It, it may take a little bit of a drive, but with any luck, there's a place close by that's public land. And, you know, maybe that's not where you want to hunt the rest of your life, but it gets you out there. It gets you familiar with the woods. And I would say that the longer that I've hunted, the more I've come to know about the animal species that I hunt and my ability to read their body language has grown. Like I can tell when a deer is alert, it's getting nervous or it's relaxed. I've got all the time in the world to slow down, to take the shot, or to let them get closer. Um, and, and that, like many areas of life, is a good place when you get, start getting there, when you start developing that comfort and that confidence in, in what you're doing, your skill. Yeah, and you really, you know, you challenge yourself when you, it's like, okay, well, I want to go hunt here. I've got the scouted out. I've looked on a Google Maps. I've driven by it. You know, I feel pretty comfortable. And then you have to go walk out there at 4 o'clock in the morning and you're like, wait a minute, it's really dark. Where am I? Where am I again? <laughs> I, I had that experience one of the first times I went. And it was like, I thought I was I thought it was where I wanted to be. And then, like, sunlight comes up. And I'm like, is, is that someone's backyard over there? <laughs> no, I was like, I'd, like, wandered around the woods and had not gotten to where I wanted to be. Oh, yeah. Um, but there are a lot of those really good lessons that you can learn. And what are some of the lessons that you think we can teach our sons? hunting in, you know, daughters too, if they want to. Sure. Sure. Uh, I think perseverance, uh, is one you have to be patient. We are in a time of life where it is just so easy to get your fix quickly. And I want to have it not in a five minute YouTube video, but a two and a half minute YouTube video. Got to have it now. Got to have it quickly right away. Hunting is not like that. Um, you go out there and you can sit for hours and it comes down to 30 seconds of action. You look up, that deer is walking on you. And if you have not scripted out exactly how you're going to respond in that situation, that deer is past you and gone in 30 seconds. Well, there went your chance. Um, which makes it really agonizing <laughs> when they get away. But it also uh, teaches you that perseverance. And, okay, i got to just stay alert. Stay more tuned next time. Um but gratitude is a big part of it too. I think that uh, when you're out in nature, uh, you can be more thankful to God for the world that he has made, um, for the resources that he's blessed our land with, including wild game resources that he has specifically blessed uh, and given to us to use and to benefit from. Self-control too. I mean, discipline for yourself to get up early. I mean, it kind of in line with your physical fitness. It's not always fun. It's not always easy, but the payoff is very real. So I know we've been talking mostly about deer hunting. Um, obviously there's lots of other kinds of hunting. What are some others that you particularly enjoy? Yeah. So I started off, uh, what's called small game hunting deer and above that's considered big game turkey or kind of somewhere in the middle, uh, Missouri, they're, they're considered more big game, but yeah, I mean, especially if you're, a newer hunter getting started or you're a younger hunter getting started something like rabbits squirrels um, where they're a lot more pop popular uh, in the sense that there's more of them more numerous um, so you've got more target opportunities more opportunities to pull off that stalk uh, or to um, if you miss have a follow-up opportunity uh, with the next rabbit that comes along you're also walking around a little bit more it's more exactly Interactive. Yes, that helps. Too. Yeah, but kids like sitting still all day. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, my children love it. It's their favorite thing. I will say that if you are going to take your kids and you are planning on sitting with them in a deer blind or someplace where they are going to be still, plan on being there for not a long period of time. Just cut it short for their sake. I mean, you want you want hunting to be fun. And I'd say this for, for new hunters, for young hunters. If you are somebody who is kind of in the mentor role, 
put yourself in their shoes as somebody who's young, somebody who's new, somebody who hasn't built up that level of patience yet and dial it back a little bit and say, you know what, rather than go and you know sit in one spot for three and a half hours and freeze, let's just walk around in the woods and we'll scout and we'll look for deer sign while we do it. But we're, we're out for squirrels. We're out for rabbits. And we're just taking a, a 22 or a shotgun and that's what we're after. And I remember when I was a kid, I got tired of sitting there in the deer stand and those squirrels looked a whole lot more appealing to me than the deer that never showed up. For sure. Peter, what's your favorite? Um, you know, honestly... Been deer hunting and turkey hunting. That's it. That's it. Very good. I didn't grow up hunting. Uh, I went deer hunting. I mean, as early as I can remember. I mean, there's a picture of my dad with <clears throat> a huge beard, and I'm probably three or four years old, and he shot probably a ten point buck, and I'm sitting there in the back of his truck, and you know, holding it, thinking it was the coolest thing ever. You ever get a chance to go duck hunting? That is a fun experience. It's a little more fast paced if you get into them. Mm-hmm. Um, you were mentioning favorite hunting stories. Uh, we went up to Nottoway County when I was 11. I just got my hunter safety license, ready to go. I just bought my first gun, Remington 870 Express, 20 gauge. Like I was, I was pumped. I bought it with my own money, oh, wow. and yes. my uncle, my dad, and I want. I think my grandpa was there too. But we get up there. And there's a drawing system, if you don't know. So there's several different plots on there, and the highest number. Uh, you draw, you get, you know, you get to pick in that order. So one, you get to pick first. And so we get up there. I mean, we left the house probably two in the morning and, you know, I'm this new kid and we're one of the first ones there. And lo and behold, I draw one and my uncle starts jumping and yelling. And I'm like, Oh, did I do something wrong? He's like, no, you drew one. We get to pick wherever we want. And we, I think we limited out in like four hours that day. I mean, we just blew them away. That's and awesome. it was an absolute blast. Well, let's go back to your favorite hunting story. Start it off with. Yes. Well, it's, it's my favorite with a catch. Um, it is the story of the big buck that got away. That didn't get away, but did get away. Because um, this was... Freshman year of college, I went to college out of state, and so that meant that I left behind the 150-acre farm that I grew up on that all during high school. I was homeschooled, so I had much more flexibility with my schedule if I wanted to do my school in the afternoon because I wanted to hunt in the morning, or if I wanted to do my school in the afternoon, uh, or do my school in the uh, morning because I wanted to hunt in the afternoon, I could do that. I had that flexibility. So I hunted all the time, all during high school, but I never got that big buck. I got really close, but you know, my senior year, it was within my grasp, just couldn't, couldn't seal the deal. Well, I came back my freshman year of college and somehow, I don't know how, I misread the calendar for when the season ended for Missouri rifle season. So I was out there. Not on the last day. I think I've heard this story before. <laughs> I was out there not on the last day of hunting season for Missouri rifle. I was there the day after, uh, which in Missouri you have bow season, 12-day rifle in the middle, more bow season on the other hand, on the other end. So if I had my bow with me, I would have been fine, but I thought it was rifle season, so I had my rifle. And the biggest buck that I'd ever seen stepped out, last light, I shoot it, perfect shot. I go out there, I'm on cloud nine. It's a Wednesday night. I go to church. I'm telling all my friends. And one of them looks at me and said, Stephen, I think gun season is yesterday. <laughs> no, the air came out of that room. And I just was shocked, floored, speechless, dumbfounded. And I got home. And sure enough, I checked the hunting regulation book and I was off by a day. So the very next day, which was a Thursday, Thanksgiving Day actually, I called the game warden and I said, hey, um, I made a mistake. I read the calendar wrong and I shot a deer out of season and the game warden came out and he said, I believe you because I don't think you'd have been calling me if you did it on purpose. But here's the thing. If I let you keep it as an honest mistake, word's going to get around and everybody's going to bring this up as the excuse of, well, you let that one kid t- uh, keep his deer. Why aren't you letting him keep this one? So he said, I'm going to just write you a warning. I'll take the deer and we'll call it good. Um, and he did. And I was so devastated by that. But at the same time, it's 
kind of like your personal ethics when you hunt. Are you going to hunt over bait or not? Are you going to look both ways and hope nobody sees you as you shoot across the neighboring property line and then go drag the deer to your side? You have to make those choices about whether you're going to have integrity or not. And that was one that, as much as it hurt, I knew that this is the right thing to do, to call it in. Um, and ironically, that story was my law school admission essay that I wrote. You know, they said, don't just write, here's why I want to go to law school. They're like, write something that will grab the admissions counselor who's reading. And it's like, well, that experience still grabs me in my life. So I'm going to write about that. It was my freshman speech. It was my law school admission essay. Um, and it's one one story that I still carry with me and tell to this day. A true man of the law right there. That's, that's a pretty good way to end the show, right? Yeah, I think that's excellent. Yeah. So, Stephen, thanks for coming on, brother. It's been fun. It's been, it was a pleasure. Thanks. Y'all didn't know you were getting gospel and hunting in the same episode, so. It all goes together. You're welcome, guys. Well, thank so. you for listening to Death and Glory Podcast. We hope that this episode edified you. Please take a moment to go to your favorite podcast platform and like and review the episode and even share it with your friends. Also, if you're a fan of the show and would like to support Death and Glory, please visit our Patreon page. Search Patreon slash Puritan Pub Media. Steven, come back again sometime. Thank you, guys. Have a good night, brother. Thank you. She's got animal spirits, and he's got animal spirits. Put them together, and you can hear it. It's a song everyone knows. To Canaan's land, I'm on my way where the soul of man never dies. My darkest night will turn today, the soul of man never dies. Dear friends, there'll be no sad farewell, there'll be no tear-dimmed nights. Where all is peace and joy and love, where the soul of man never dies. A rose is growing there for me, where the soul of man never dies. And I will spend eternity, where the soul of man never dies. Dear friends, there'll be no sad farewell, there'll be no tear-dim nights. Where all is peace and joy and love, where the soul of man never dies.